Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. We're happy now that our brother Don compelled us. We're going to turn this name of our Bible Instruction Time over to Brother Don, please. Good morning. It's uh, that time of the year, of course, as we've been singing Christmas carols, where we concentrate our thoughts often on the birth of Christ. And I'm going to speak a little bit about that birth. I'm going to draw your attention to two verses of Scripture that are commonly read during this time of year. Some of you may have committed them to memory, but they're found in Isaiah's chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and who can tell me what verse I'm heading for? Isaiah 9 and 6. There we go, Isaiah 9 and 6. Let's read those two verses. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Uh, this morning, I'm going to put you through a bit of an experiment. How many of you are familiar with monovision? Monovision is when one eye sees afar off and the other eye is able to see close up. <laughs> uh, some people don't deal well with monovision. My wife has been has contacts, and she uses monovision and has for a number of years. Some, as I said, some people can't deal with it. Well, I had eye surgery on my right eye, and uh, when I had my cataract surgery, I could see afar off just fine and needed glasses for close-up. Well, come to find out, and I don't know if this was by design, but when my lens shifted and had to be put back in place and secured, I now seem to be able to see real well this way, and up close this way. Now the trick is, will both of those eyes come together well? I forgot my glasses this morning, so they're going to need to come together well. Else I'm going to have to wear my shades at our prescription, but then you'll probably think I came from the CIA or Hollywood or the FBI, so I'm going to try not to use my shades. I'll try to go with the, uh, the eyes that the Lord gave me. Unto us a son is given, we read. Notice the two terms that are used to describe this person. A child born, a son given. And we look back on the scriptures and begin to realize that the son was given before the child was ever born. And that reminds us that he is the eternal one, the second person of the Trinity, the psalmist declares this, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son today, I have begotten you. So now we know that God has a son. Some of the Jews were disputing whether or not God even has a son, let alone being called the son of God. And then with regard to his deity, the psalmist Further on, in the 110th Psalm, writes this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now, interestingly enough, Jesus quoted these verses to demonstrate his deity to the Jewish leaders who challenged his claim to be the Son of God. Let me just read that narrative recorded in Mark's Gospel. How is it then that the scribes say, this is Jesus speaking, that the Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So here's the question he posed to them. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And of course, we know Jesus as man came through David's lineage. But as God, he was Lord. As man, he's David's son. As God, he's David's Lord, the eternal one. That was, as I had mentioned before, the chief accusation. I think this was the real, you might say, the straw that broke the camel's back. Of the accusations they launched against him is that he claimed to be the Son of God. During his trial, the high priest, remember that mock trial that they put together, and the high priest said, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And remember what Jesus responded. He said, it is as you said. It is as you said. But then he goes further on and says this. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds in heaven. Boy, that flat rattled his cage. He really was upset when he heard that. And this is what he says. He has spoken blasphemy. To think about being called God's Son was to them unthinkable. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now. You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, he's deserving of death. Imagine, because he called himself the son of God, he was deserving of death. And of course, they put Pilate in a box, so to speak, between a rock and a hard place. He didn't understand these things. He didn't know anything about the Jewish law. And so he finally, reluctantly, after having said, I find no fault in him, decided to allow them to pronounce a death sentence. The son given an eternity past could say this, before Abraham was, I am. Think about that, that babe in Bethlehem's manger, the one growing up in those silent years, the one walking and conversing with men who looked just exactly as any other man of his time could say, before Abraham was, I am. The great I am that he approached Moses with. Now we find the child born. For us, a child is born. Deity now takes on humanity. And it was prophesied immediately after the fall of man. Here's what God said to the devil. I'll put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. And what's going to happen? He will bruise your heel. And you shall bruise, he will bruise your head, rather, and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that that actually happened. Satan bruised the heel, or the head, rather, of 
Jesus when he entered the uh, heart of Judas to betray him, leading to his death. And Jesus bruised the head of the Satan when he entered into death's domain and conquered death and went into the very depths of the devil, who the writer of Hebrews says had the power of death. And he delivered those or released those who for fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So I guess theoretically, the Messiah could have been an angel or the Messiah could have taken on God without humanity. Christ chose to clearly identify with humanity by coming into the world as a helpless baby. So to become our savior and our great high priest, he must take on flesh and blood. We needed a perfect, infinite being to offer a perfect, infinite atonement for our sins. We needed Emmanuel. We needed God with us. So now he can totally relate to us regarding our weaknesses and regarding our needs. That is why the writer of Hebrews says, now you can come boldly because he can sympathize with us. He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. That Jesus is both God and man confirms us to us rather that man really was created in the image of God. Someone wrote this. Perfect humanity is more compatible with deity than we imagined. Think about that for a minute. Perfect humanity is more compatible with deity than we imagine. Then Isaiah goes on to write, and the government will be upon his shoulder. That, of course, describes the time when he's going to come as coming king. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely, which they don't presently always. Now this is his name by which he will be called. What? The name our righteousness. He will come and reign in complete righteousness. And Paul confirms that God's coming to earth was really an eternal plan. He writes, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it was accomplished or thought of and planned in eternity past. Ultimately, we know that will be fulfilled during the millennial reign when Jesus Christ will rule on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, and then every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And we find references there in the Psalms, in Isaiah, and Zechariah. <clears throat> This ultimate fulfillment of this promise is still waiting. We're waiting for that time when, you know, the the carol, joy to the world. We just sang it. The world has come. Let earth receive her what? Have they done that? No, they haven't. Someday they will. See, that's something more prophetic than people think. 
Let earth receive her king, you know. Uh, someday, of course, earth will receive her king, and he will rule in righteousness. That's the son given. But the shoulder upon, the government will be upon his shoulder. How do we relate to that today? Even though we're looking for a time when that'll actually become a living reality with regard to the world. Well, remember, when Jesus was on earth, he said this. He said, I will build my what? Church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then that not only did he assemble those who were the foundational members of the church in the building process, but then he ascended to heaven, brought his Holy spent his Holy Spirit to earth, and now he serves as the church's risen head. He is the head of the body, the church, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Overseers serve under the head of of Christ, our risen head. And so in that sense, he governs the church. The government is of the church is on his very shoulders. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it because the government is upon his shoulders. The gates of hell cannot hinder. They've been down through the ages, have tried, but they've been unsuccessful. There's another way in which he governs, and we sometimes don't think about it this way. He governs in the lives of those who have confessed him as Savior and Lord. Whenever someone miraculously leaves a life of drugs or addiction and is restored to his family, restored to his work, we see God governing in that person's life. Whenever loving Christians care for orphans, and demonstrate the love of Christ. That's God governing in their lives. Whenever we see people who are eager to learn the Bible, who rejoice in their salvation, that's God governing in their lives. Whenever people give up lucrative careers to go and spread the gospel to faraway places, that's God governing in their lives. And I think it can be summed up this way. People are governed by the government of, here it is, it has a name, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it, isn't it? We're governed by this government called Christ in you, the hope of government. And he governs within the hearts and lives of those who put their faith and trust in him. Now I'm going to read something that I found from Enduring Word, and I like the way this brother express this sentiment about the government shall be upon his shoulder. So indeed, the government is alive and working, often silently, mostly unseen. We can be and are by choice governed by God. Hope and joy and peace rest, cover its subjects. Justice, mercy, and grace amazingly coexist. I like this kingdom. The borders are open. Come on in. Don't you like the way he expresses this? I like this kingdom. The borders are open. Come on in. God governing in the church. God governing in the very lives of those living stones who make up the church. So the government is still upon his shoulders even today. Now we deal, of course, with his names, and that describes to us his marvelous, wonderful character and his position. 
wonderful. The enduring word writes it this way. The glory of who he is and what he has done for us should fill us with wonder. His character was demonstrated by his actions while here on earth. Remember what the folks said about him. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, some claim that wonderful is an adjective to describe counselor. In other words, the idea is wonderful counselor. Well, his words demonstrated how marvelous and wonderful his counsel was and still is. Here's what they said when they observed what he had to say and observed his counsel. They said, for he taught them as one having authority and not as a scribe. I think Billy mentioned that earlier this morning. He talked as one who had, imagine having a counselor who can speak to you with absolute positive authority. I'm going to counsel you and tell you what you should do, how you should act, and I do it with absolute positive authority. Actually, most counsel today is suggestions, aren't they? They're simply suggestions. I assume or I believe, based on what I'm hearing, I'm going to suggest to you and I'm going to counsel you to do this or to do that. But this one counseled with absolute authority, and that's why he is a wonderful counselor. No one gives counsel like Almighty God, the wonderful counselor. And today as our high, great high priest, he stands ready to help. He stands ready to give wonderful counsel. Here's what the Hebrews said, the writer of Hebrews. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain two things. And these two things cover a whole lot of stuff. We might mercy, find mercy, God withholding, Find grace, God bestowing, to help in time of need. I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. I need counsel. I can go and boldly throat the throne of grace and get wonderful counsel from the wonderful counselor because he's our great high priest. Now we come to the mighty God. Isaiah ascribes, rather, deity to the son given and the child born. He is the mighty God who can not only perform marvelous miracles, but he's the mighty God who, more importantly, can forgive sins. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone, they asked. And the Lord himself said, But you, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He's the mighty God. Remember John Peterson's, I think John Peterson wrote, It's a Miracle. It's a miracle, what? To hang the world in space, it's a miracle. But then John said, Well, there's a greater miracle than that. When he, what, saved my soul, made me whole, whoa. Now there's a miracle. That's the miracle of love and grace. The mighty God. He's still the mighty God. He's mighty to save. Now the everlasting Father. Jesus Christ is the source and author of all eternity. 
the creator, the everlasting father. I like the way the writer of Hebrews expresses it. Imagine how he uh, describes this person. He says that God has appointed his son, heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and holding all things by the word of his power. Imagine that now. When he had himself, or by himself, purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. His name is excellent because he is everlasting, and as an everlasting father, he can not fail. Well, of course, we used to say, Jesus never failed. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The everlasting Father. Having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name. Which of the angels could be called an everlasting father or the mighty God? A more excellent name than they. And Isaiah reports that he will not fail. He will not fail, nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastland shall wait for his law, the everlasting father. Now here's something that gets a little difficult for us to deal with. And that is, this does not mean that Jesus himself is the person of the Father in the Trinity. We recognize that there are three persons in the Trinity. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now that's something that I struggle with. Perhaps you do as well. Interestingly enough, though, Scripture teaches us this. It talks about the Father, it talks about the Son, it talks about the Holy Spirit. But I find one way to help me understand this idea is the way the Godhead operates. And think about it this way. It's God the Father who wills. It's God the Father who commands. Remember what Jesus said, For I came down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will, the command, the desire of him that sent me. That's God the Father. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his Son. Then the Son is the one who administers, the second person of the Godhead. He's the one who executes. He's the one who actually came down from heaven to earth. He says, I'm going to do yeah, there it is, execution. I'm going to do the will of him that sent me. Then, of course, we now find the working of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who brings it to the heart of man. So God the Father wills it, God the Son executes it, and God the Holy Spirit brings that right down into the recesses of the heart of man. He does it, first of all, with regard to the world. He has a convicting work to the world. And when he has come, he will convince or convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And then, of course, that same Holy Spirit 
serves as our helper with regard to our understanding and our teaching and our encouraging. But the helper, he says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. See all the persons of the Godhead? The Father's going to send him in the name of the Son, and he's going to come, and he's going to teach and reveal. So that reminds us that Paul said, wrote to Timothy, there's just one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the second person. Mankind separated by sin, and God said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. That has been down through the ages. But now God offers a peace plan or a peace treaty between God and man through his sacrifice for sins on the cross of Calvary. To the writer of Colossians, Paul expresses it this way, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And that peace treaty, just as any other peace treaty, only becomes operable when it's signed and accepted by both persons. I can put together the nicest peace treaty you can imagine, but if the person on the other side refuses to accept it or sign it, a treaty does not exist. They are, it's signed by placing simple faith in the one and his finished work on the cross who brought peace by the blood of his cross. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And having had peace with God, we now enjoy through the Holy Spirit the peace of God, the peace that surpasses all understanding. He truly is the Prince of Peace. So, today the world celebrates, celebrates rather Christmas. And I think perhaps the world looks at a couple things. I think they look at the child born, perhaps not so much the son given, certainly not the wonderful counselor, certainly not the mighty God, and certainly not the everlasting father. They're taken up with this Christmas story, which is an amazing story. Brother Dave read that account this morning. An historical event, well documented. A baby born in Bethlehem, a real mother and a real father, just as we have. Mary betrothed to Joseph, followed with child, remember? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now here's Joseph faced with this huge dilemma. He's betrothed to a woman who's great with child. And the, whole, the angel approaches him and informs him that that child is born and conceived of the Holy Ghost. And so he does the honorable thing. He makes, he says he's not wanting to make her a public example. He was minded to put her away secretly, but he, having been informed, he went to Bethlehem's town and he actually registered his son in the royal genealogy in Bethlehem. Therefore, David became the legal son of David and rightful heir to David's throne. 
The Prince of Peace. Oh, that world loves to talk about peace. Wow, we're going to have peace, peace, peace. And of course, that sometimes emphasis is placed on the teachings of Christ. I, I don't think I've ever met anybody who will say that the teachings of Christ were bad. You ever run into anybody who says, you know, Jesus Christ came to earth and he taught some stuff. Man, it's questionable. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure I can relate to any of those teachings. They just don't, they don't sound right. Well, what did he do? He came to planet earth and, and he said, love your enemies. Whoa. Jews were told to destroy their enemies. That was a shocker. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they say, oh, isn't this wonderful? This man came to earth to make the world a better place in which to live. He preached peace, and if we love our enemies and we try very hard to not despitefully use people and we do unto others as we would have them do unto you, we are going to make the world a better place. He truly is the Prince of Peace. Yeah, but you see, he's also the wonderful counselor. He's also the Almighty God. He's also the Everlasting Father. He's also the Son that was given before the child was ever born. As the Son given, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That's what it's all about. Not to make the world a better place to live, although we do see the results of his teaching. Some people try very hard to live good lives, but he did not come for that purpose. He came as the wonderful counselor, the Mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, to make peace through the blood of his cross and to save sinners. Isn't it nice we have this time of the year when we can witness to the world and testify to the world that Jesus Christ came to save sinners? I uh, remember, and I probably said this before, I think I say it every year, but um, there's a story about, the, I think it's the American Bible Society, perhaps, put up a big sign. And it said, let's put Christ back into Christmas. You know, what does Christmas mean to some people? Material things, many times. Someone is said to have looked up at that sign and said, there they go again, trying to put religion into everything. Can you imagine that? Let's put Christ back into, oh, there they go. Trying to put religion in there. Is it Christmas? Christmas. What's Christmas about? <laughs> Let's put Christ back into Christmas. What a great, what a great thing to do. Put Christ. They often say wise men still seek him. Is that right? Wise men still seek him. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful for the one who came from heaven's heights, the mighty God. Ah the everlasting Father, the wonderful Counselor, the one who brought peace to our hearts. How good it is to think about his condescension as he came from heaven's glory. And we just pray that during this time of year we might really put Christ in the forefront of our Christmas thinking and our Christmas season this year. 
May the thoughts have been expressed this morning be a blessing to those who have listened. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.